it's traditional in beginning a retreat, or one way to begin a retreat, is to talk about the path of practice, to look at it as a kind of overview. And in many of the retreats that I've taught, I've started by speaking of the Eightfold Path, which is a systematic outline of teaching of the Buddha that describes the aspects of practice that are universal. I'd like to speak this evening at the end of your first day of sitting together, our first day of sitting together, about the path of practice, not using the Eightfold Path, but rather another model of the sacred journey. In recent months, I've had the circumstance and at times the privilege of doing some teaching and work together with a close friend, a a psychotherapist, around healing and also working with people who have AIDS. And when we first started to work together, this friend and I, and meet with some groups of people who were doing healing work themselves as counselors and aides, or meeting with people who had AIDS directly, we started to search in ourselves for what understanding we might have and what truth and what strength we might have to bring to that circumstance. And this good friend of mine told a story that's a very difficult story that I'll share with you now. That's one of the first ways he had to share of his own work. He works as a body worker and as a psychotherapist. And there came to see him one day a man in great pain He was a person who worked in the construction industry and he had somehow thrown his back out and was unable to be fixed from that and was due to go in for back surgery. A great big man and apparently they carried him in to my friend's office. It took several people to help carry him in. Rigid and in great pain. He came in some ways out of desperation, thinking that perhaps some body work could help so that he wouldn't have to undergo the surgery. It was sort of his last hope. My friend said, all right, I will try to work with you. And he began to work with him, doing stretching and touching and just getting this man who was in such rigid pain to soften and to ease and to bring his awareness back into his body. And he said it took some weeks of seeing him, two, three times a week, putting hands on, just bringing his attention back, let go, soften, touch, feel, open. And then after a few weeks, some weeks of working, a new problem surfaced. It turned out that the man couldn't feel very well in his body because he was an addict. 
And he was addicted in this case to uh, Demerol, which he shot up with a number of times a day. So then they moved from softening and opening the body a bit to the addiction and worked for a number of not just weeks but months about the pain and the using of the drugs and the shooting of the drugs as a way to ease that pain and how to begin to feel and relate to living in that body and gradually to taper off from the drugs. As he began to feel a bit better, his body was a bit better and he began to decrease the amount of drugs he was using, then his marriage started to fall apart because in the marriage he had been the patient and his wife had been the caretaker and they had a relatively working system of how things were supposed to be. And as he started to heal and get a bit better, that shook up the whole system. Any of you who are in intimate relations will probably know of what I speak. And so he went through a whole crisis about his marriage and that had to be looked at and talked about and worked with. Then he started to go into fear as his body opened more and he had trouble sleeping. He couldn't sleep at night and he had terrible, terrible attacks of panic. He couldn't drive, he couldn't work again. It got even worse. He thought he was going crazy. And they worked with that for a while. And finally he came in one morning and he said, there's something I have to tell you that I've never told anyone before. And it turns out, as in some of the terrible stories we have heard, that he was drafted and sent to Vietnam as a young man, as an infantryman. And he was up in the northern part of Vietnam. And he spent almost a full term there uh, in, in an area of a great deal of fighting. And near the end of his time to leave, he was with several good friends who had been there together. And they went out walking on a patrol and they were ambushed and all were shot and killed, including him. He was shot and thought to be dead and left there in a pool of blood, thought that he was dead. And after the ambush was over and they disappeared, he managed to get up and stagger back to his camp. The only survivor of all his close friends and it threw him into a state of such terrible rage and pain and craziness that he went and collected a great deal of weapons and went to a nearby friendly village and took out his guns and shot everybody. Everything that was there. And he never told anyone for 20 years. So he told this story. 
And there really isn't anything you can say. My friend just listened. He listened for a long time to that story and other stories, and the man just told stories and stories which he needed to tell. And the nightmares and the fear started to diminish some. And the grief and the self-hatred and the guilt. And then they worked for a while longer together. And the man's marriage was still quite terrible. And finally it became clear what he had to do. And he went and he told his wife, because there was no way to be with her as another person in an honest way without telling her that story. And then they continued in therapy to look at why this had happened. And it turned out, not surprisingly, that this man had had a terrible childhood and been an abused child himself who had been beaten and abused in some bad ways, really terrible ways. And as most of you may know, the people who are child abusers in this country, almost all of them were abused as children themselves. And so he saw what happened as an expression of what had happened to him. And they worked again for a long time. And gradually, gradually, over a very long and difficult and sorrowful process, he began to heal himself enough so that he could work, enough so that he could hold a job and give something back to the world, enough so that he could support his family and take care of them and not be cruel to them. I start with that story, and it's a difficult one to tell, and a difficult one for you to hear, probably. Because of my respect for the level of work that we've come together to do, throughout history, in every great time and age and culture and China or Egypt, and the Native American culture in India, there has been a preoccupation of humankind in every era to find that which heals us, which opens us, which takes us beyond the limited sense of ourself to that which is greater, to the sacred, to the transcendental. It's a universal journey. It's the journey of the healer or the yogi or the sage or the shaman, the wise man and woman. And although the journey may be separated from one culture or continent to another, or one age to another, the Buddha 2,500 years ago, or us here, it's always the same journey. 
It's the journey from the mundane, from the busyness of our life. Leaving that and entering some deeper realm of ourselves to touch that which is holy. And then finding a way to integrate that, to bring that back. Holy is the same root as the word whole. To become whole, to not be separate in any realm of experience of life. And as in the story I told, it takes a great deal of courage. There are six stages to this journey of opening and healing and awakening. The first is one of renunciation. From even the most satisfying of worldly work, there comes a time in one's life where we see a kind of inner frustration or lack of depth, even if it's good work and you're serving and helping people and so forth. There comes an inner call to something deeper, a call to awakening. Instead of just living out our life and having a family or a good job or whatever, all the things that we were taught to do in elementary school and beyond, the kind of cultural norm, there comes some other sense, and it comes in many different ways. For, for Lewis Thomas, the writer, it came as sadness. He said, I don't really understand the source of our great cultural sadness, except to see that perhaps we have come so far without truly knowing ourselves. It comes in many ways, but there's some sense that we need to look deeper in the meaning of our life. And so we turn from the outer things inward, oriented not toward the society or culture or its values, but to the heart and the cosmos. And when that awakens in us, then the next thing which we discover is that we have to do it alone. We can have wonderful friends and teachers and sangha and support. They all help. But in the end, it's a solitary journey for us, turning inward, understanding. The 103-year-old Mexican Indian shaman named Don Jose Rios, who I've had the privilege to study with occasionally, said at one point, I pursued my apprenticeship for 84 years. During these years, it's a long retreat, many, many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I have endured much suffering during my life, yet to learn to see to learn to hear, you must do this. Go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only by yourself, only in solitude. And it's not the solitude of the mountains or the forests, although so they're a wonderful place to learn. But it's really the solitude of the heart. It's that solitude of the silence that we create for one another. 
So this is the first step. This call, something inside says, there, there's something deeper than just fulfilling this life as it's been taught to me. I want to know. I want to understand. And then that turning toward that in oneself, doing it alone. Then the second step is that this journey is founded for each person on a sacred question. The question can be, who am I? Or what is this life for? It may be one of wishing to understand. For some people, it's the question of, how can I love? What would it mean to love really fully and deeply? For others, they look around and they see the politics of the world and they see one war after another, and one revolution and a new government and the next revolution that supplants it. And they say, there must be some other way. But it's a question that must come from inside each of us. What is your question? What brings you to this, your sacred question? From some deep desire to know or to be free or to love. When Zen Master Kusan, this Korean Zen Master, came to the three-month retreat one year, he came just at the end of a three-month retreat. People had been sitting. He's a famous old Zen Master. He sat up here and he was told a little about the retreat and he told everyone, oh, you're doing wrong kind of practice. Now, that was very upsetting to people who had just sat for three months, <clears throat> as you can imagine. <clears throat> and he looked around, he said, only one practice. There's only one practice. He said, I give you the one practice. What is this? And he kind of yelled it, what is this? That was his practice. What is this? That's his question. <laughs> For Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who describes her whole journey of discovery and kind of being the innovator and being willing to face death in Western culture, she said that all began for her as a young nurse when she traveled after the Second World War from Switzerland, from her home, <clears throat> and found herself in refugee camps and on the way stopped in a concentration camp. And she saw, it was just after the war, piles of clothes and shoes from children, just terrible things. And she said, I want to understand how human beings can do this to one another and what another way might be. She said she saw on the wall of one of those places a, a child's drawing of a, of a butterfly in a tree and a, a chrysalis, a, a cocoon, and then the, uh, the caterpillar in a tree and then this butterfly emerging. She said it just touched her that there's so much inherent beauty and wisdom in the spirit of children. And how do we lose that? And how might we regain it? The Buddha said that many people are like children who play with their toys in a house that's burning and haven't noticed but that for one who understands this, practice doesn't become a luxury, 
but a real urgent desire in some way. I read you a poem from, from Rumi. He says, with the merchant close by, a magician measures out 500 yards of linen by moonlight. It takes all of his money, but the merchant buys the lot. It's so beautiful. Suddenly, there's no linen, and of course, no money, which was his life spent wrongly. Prayers are not enough. You must do something. Three companions for you. Number one, what you own. He won't even leave the house for some danger you might be in. He stays inside. Number two, your good friend. He at least comes to the funeral. He stands and talks at the gravesite for a few minutes, but no further. The third companion, what you are, your work, your love, your understanding, goes down into death to be there with you. Take deep refuge in that companion beforehand. Don Juan put it very simply, he said to Carlos, the trouble with you is you think you have time and you don't know. So there's some question, what is the purpose of this? How can I love? Then the next stage in this journey, the next necessary piece, is some kind of discipline, some form of practice to break the shell of our conditioning, of our habit. Not so much to gain something, but to stop running away. William Blake said at one point, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. And so it's not a spiritual journey of, all right, now we'll visualize wonderful rainbow worlds of crystal light. It's, all right, let's stop running away and come back just to what is here now and use some discipline or some practice or some way to do it. Not imposed from the outside, because that gets wearisome very fast if you're doing it for anyone else. You can't really do this practice for another person or any deep spiritual practice. After a while, you rebel. It has to really come from inside, generated from in, within your heart. A discipline, a way to transform what we see, a building of personal power. And here, we're working with the breath. That's our first discipline. And with sitting and walking, this incredibly simple thing. You sit down and you say, okay, mind, stay on the breath. Does it listen? Not a prayer, right? Where does it go? Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Hawaii, New York, 1958, 1982, 1997. I mean, it'll go anywhere, right? And then you you get disappointed and you get angry and whatever, and you bring it back. And it's this very simple thing, please just stay on the breath. Does it listen? Not for a second. Well, maybe for a second, then it goes off. And so the first thing that's necessary in this kind of discipline, whatever spiritual practice, whether it's saying a mantra or using the breath or 
candle or whatever, is something that brings us together because it's here in the moment that the learning will take place. What we're after is, is not what you may have dis- heard described as an out-of-the-body experience, but something more rare called an in-the-body experience, right? Remember that line from James Joyce where he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body? So the first thing that we're doing is just connecting the, the mind, the heart, the body, our whole being to be here. And we do it over and over again. Now, the image that's used a lot, that's helpful, is of training a puppy. You pick the puppy and you put it on a piece of paper, stay, please stay there. Does it listen? Of course not. It gets up and it runs around. Take the puppy over and you put it on the paper, stay. After enough times, the puppy gradually begins to learn. Takes a while. Do you want to beat the puppy? I know, you know, some of us may have that habit, but it doesn't help the puppy very much. And it's not very good at yourself either. So when the mind wanders off, okay, bring it back to the breath. And it goes off again, like training the puppy. Each time you bring it back over and over, it gradually begins to train yourself to be able to be here. Returning gently, you don't have to beat the puppy. Of course the puppy makes a mess sometimes. The mind does worse than that, but that's all right. You just clean, wipe it up a little bit, bring it back to the next breath. Now what helps with that is the labeling, is noticing in and out carefully, feeling the touch of the breath in the body, not the words, but actually experiencing the life breath, the movement of it, this mystery that keeps us alive and connected with one another. We're all breathing the same breath, the same air. That's what you breathed a little while ago. We share it. And it's to feel it, to bring yourself back over and over and over until after some time there comes a a wholeness, a connectedness. It's this process, this discipline, that starts to transform us. What's important is not the attainment, but the totality of our commitment to the truth. That if we keep doing it and coming back, gradually we will begin to see. And there are all kinds of techniques. The Native Americans would sit and they'd have a big ball which represented the earth and a small one which represented the sun rising and setting. And one of their practices was just to sit and roll the little ball around the big one, day and night without stop, for three, four, five days, until all the thoughts and fears and imaginings and hopes and expectations and everything quieted down and the body and the mind became just whole in the present. There are many ways to do it. Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, called meditation manual labor, right? It's just kind of getting down and coming back again over and over. Read to you from one of my favorite Dharma books, the Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) This is the category for most failures on a learner's test. The record for persistence in taking and failing tests for a driver's license is held by Miriam Hargrave, who failed her 39th driving test in eight years on April 29th when she crashed through a set of red lights accidentally. (laughs) She finally passed her 40th test uh, on August uh, the following year 
Unfortunately, she spent so much on driving lessons, she could no longer afford to buy a car. <laughs> that was in 1970. In 1978, she was still reported to have great difficulty with left-hand turns. <laughs> Mrs. Fanny Turner of Little Rock, Arkansas, passed her written test for a driver's license on her 104th attempt, October 1978. There is also a record in there for the longest kiss. 17 days, 10 hours, when you're sitting and feeling a little impatient or bored. (laughs) But it doesn't really happen without your being present. There's somebody who has to be here to awaken. Guess who, right? And so the process is this over and over again, coming back with the next step, with the cup of tea, with opening the door, with feeling the breath, or the other experiences as they arise, as we open the retreat further. It's really a willingness to do that. Now we get afraid, you know, or we sort of tend to adjust. You find your little rhythm in here, and you find your way to do it, and then you can space out a little. There was a professor who had a class for psychology students, undergraduates, and part of what they studied was um, transpersonal psychology, Abraham Maslow, and the teachings about the possibility of self-actualization or self-realization. And at the end of that semester, he gave the students an exam. And one of the essay questions was, um, what did you feel about the higher values and self-realization? Was that interesting to you? And most of the students weren't interested. They were afraid it would be dull and unexciting to live without faults and weaknesses. Um, One student said, no, I'm not interested because I wouldn't want to be as rude as those people tend to be. And another said, I'm not interested in self-realization. There would be no more mountains to climb and nowhere to go but down. And the third student, when asked if interested, said, no, not anytime soon, but yes, before I die. I have so much left to live for, and I want to have a good time before I reach (laughs) self-actualization. So we get afraid in some way, which is natural. We get used to our conditioned way. And what you're asked to do here is something different than your habit. And in that very difference, some awakening takes place. Now, you want to hear about a training, especially since it's winter time. This is the training of an Eskimo shaman. His name was Ajukajuk. He was placed by his teacher on a small sled, just large enough for him to sit on, and carried far from his home to the other side of an ice lake. On reaching the appointed spot, he remained seated on the sledge while his instructor built a tiny snow hut, barely room for him to sit cross-legged. He wasn't allowed to set foot on the snow, but was lifted from the sled, carried into the hut where a piece of skin large enough for him to sit on served as his only carpet. No food or drink was given. He was exhorted to let go of everything and only listen to the spirit and left to meditate. After five days, his instructor brought him a drink of lukewarm water and with similar exhortations left him as before. He fasted now, sitting for 15 days, when he was given another drink of water and a very small piece of meat, which had to last a further 10 days. 
At the end of this period, his instructor came for him and fetched him home. Ichukachuk declared that the strain of those 30 days of cold and fasting and sitting was so severe that he often felt like he died a little. During all those times, he thought only of the great spirit and endeavored to free his mind from all other things. And toward the end of them, there came an extraordinary vision and understanding. For five months following this trial, he was kept on the strictest diet and through his courage to traverse the territory of death itself, of the unknown, became a great shaman, a healer, and a wise man. So if you have trouble with just tea in the evening or whatever, and that's, that's a training for you. In any case, what matters is not so much making it a samurai thing. That's not our purpose here or some kind of effort of will. The real effort is the, is the effort of the heart, our willingness to sit and walk and be in some deep way truly with ourself and with what's here and to do it over and over again to be willing to stay with our life as it is from one moment to another. In doing it, there comes to us a sense that in repeating and the practice of sitting and walking and so forth, that we have some power of our spirit, of our being, of our heart, that's much greater than we generally know. Martin Luther King put it this way when he spoke of his own practice and when he tried to inspire others in difficult times. He said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey the unjust laws you have promulgated. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so touch and appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom and win you in the process. So that's this third stage, a turning away from the worldly values, a sacred question, and then some discipline, something where we're willing to stop our busyness and just be with what is in a true way. Then what happens when we do it? Hmm. Trouble, that's the fourth stage, also called hardship or difficulty. The Buddhists call it Mara. Mara is, is the name for a man, a god, an archetype of all of our troubles rolled into one. And as we finally stop from all the running around and distraction and busyness and things that we keep ourselves so we don't have to feel, so we don't have to face, so we don't have to be here, when we really start to undertake in some deep way this surrender into the present, then there arises inevitably hardship. 
And these hardships, in a sense, are all the things that we've run away from for our whole life. So Mara comes in many forms. Mara comes as temptation. All the kinds of desires and temptations. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything but temptation, right? And so Mara comes in the form of recreation. Let's go for a little extra walk and make some extra tea and hang out in the library and read some interesting book about somebody else's meditation practice. Mara comes as fantasies, as what we'll do when we'll leave, of lust, of desire, all kinds of temptations. Has anybody noticed Mara visitations here? And it's interesting because he was around in India and China and Egypt and he gets around this fellow. And then when you've learned to work with all of that, then Mara comes in yet a more difficult form. Mara comes not as temptation and desire. And Howie will talk much more directly about working with these things in another night or two. These forces is part of practice. But then Mara comes as an attacker. And there's anger and doubt and I can't do it and you're, it's the wrong way and the wrong time and my body hurts and all of these things. It's too hard. And then you try and sit and walk and sit and walk anyway and work with that and see it clearly. It's difficult, especially because in the first day or two, there's this whole settling down process where you sit here and you're physically still but the inside is still in New York City or something like that. And there's thoughts and there's the energy and vibration and many people work very hard so they can get 10 days off to sit. And they're running to the last minute and they come here and they sit down and all of that speed is still going on inside. So there's a, there's a period of two or three days, even for the oldest and most skilled yogi, of an opening of the body and a settling down and an unknotting. And there's the pains and the things that have to be felt and released and allowed over and over again. So the attack in that way. And it means when the physical things come, being soft with that. The knees hurt, the back hurts, the shoulders, all these things. They're part of what we've carried for so long by our running and by our not being here. And finally we get quiet and we sit And then what shows themselves? All the knots that we've carried. And as they release and open, they hurt more, not less. Or the feelings come with them, our sorrow and our grief and our rage and our unfinished business. All of those are things that we face as we settle down. They're workable. Not only are they workable, they actually are part of what makes the practice bring a strength to you. I'll give you a little example. You know, I've given all these great examples, Martin Luther King and Vietnam veteran going through all these terrible things, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I was sitting meditating one day out in a meadow outside. It was a nice day, sunny, and I was just sitting there pleasantly having, quite frankly, a la-di-da sitting a lot of space out, nice fantasies, just kind of pleasant, you know, not doing much. And all of a sudden, a fly landed on my face. Well, you know, the impulse is to brush it away. Nah, I teach this stuff, all right. I'll just, I'll do it. I'll pay attention. So it crawls around a little bit. And I'm just itching, itching, and kind of sitting there with it. All right, so it sort of centers me a little more, staying aware of it. 
Then the fly moves over to just the edge of my nostril and my lips. You know, because that's where the moisture is, right? And then, then there comes this kind of involuntary fear, like you're going <laughs> to inhale it or something, <laughs> some terrible thing will happen. Okay, breathe. <sighs> just take it easy. There's the fly. And so I have a fly, fly, sensation, sensation. I'm just paying attention. That's what's going on, right? There's the breath. Now there's fly meditation. So. Okay. It stayed, I guess, because there wasn't much moisture anywhere else. It stayed for 10 or 15 minutes that lasted an eternity. I mean, it was such a long period of time, and at first there was waves of revulsion or fear or, or uh, restlessness, and I just revulsion, re- restless, restless, I just kind of noticed that stuff. Finally, that would quiet down. And then I noticed that instead of that la-di-da sitting, everything started to get very still and concentrated. There was no plans, no memories, no taxes to pay, no problems to solve. It had disappeared. For those ten minutes, which were eternity, there was only one thing in the whole universe. Tiny little feet, right? (laughs) Walking around. And by the end of... By the end of ten minutes of sitting in that way, I was so concentrated and present. It was as if I had just sat a month-long retreat. It was extraordinary. And then the fly flew away to teach somebody else, I guess, or something like that. I hope that gives you a sense that it's not that the difficulties are problems, but that they're really part of this process. So restlessness comes, and what do you do? You just sit and be restless. What if it's terrible? I can't stand it. Fine. Then die of restlessness. You just sit here and say, okay, I'll be the first yogi to die of restlessness in Barry, right? See what happens. Take me, you know. So Mara comes in all these forms. Desire, come on, let's just fulfill one more, right? (laughs) Temptations, imaginations, uh, anger, difficulties, doubt, fears, all kinds of things, bodily pains. And what your task is, is to find what what Joseph Campbell described in the journey as the, the unmovable seat, the seat in the center of the world that you just sit as the Buddha did. He sat down under the Bodhi tree and he said, I'm not going to move for anything. I'm not going to get up until I have seen deeply that which is true. There are subtle temptations that come as these big ones disappear. You get clarity and you get light and you feel good. And then and there comes pride in a sense of, look how good I am or I want to hold on to this calm or this light. This isn't what I've been working for. And those are Mara in a more subtle guise because the true practice is to discover that there is nothing to be held on to. Even when light and rapture and clarity do arise for you, just light, light, rapture, rapture, clarity, clarity, it comes and it goes. It's all part of the passing show. And it's to find that unshakable place that is not attracted by or lost in anything that comes and passes. So the Buddha took that vow, I'm going to sit here. And what it means is to face everything, to face our demons and our fears. And in some sense, in the end, all the images, the nature of our body, to come to face our own death, our own mortality. 
to journey by sitting on that unmovable spot to every realm that the mind and body will present to us. And to find in that the power of the heart to be unmoved. This is from the Sufis. Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. It's to find a place of our being and our heart and our wisdom and our love that can sit in the midst of everything. Of course it's difficult. That's why we've moved so many times in our life. But there's one thing, the Buddha said, the not seeing of which has kept us bound on this wheel of samsara. (coughs) Which means this wheel or this cycle of endless busyness of becoming and doing and having and getting over and over and over again. And that's the not, the, the unwillingness to stop and face the pain and the suffering of our life. That's part of our teachings. And in it, if we sit and face everything we have run from, in the hardship, we learn how to transform Mara. It's kind of alchemical, like turning lead into gold. Thomas Merton said, True prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. And what you learn when you sit and face it all, finally, is that you have to cooperate with Mara. You learn to see and accept and not be so traumatized by it. It's not that you have to get rid of it, but you learn instead the power of the heart. This is the last lesson, it said, the lesson of the transforming power of love and openness and awareness. It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude, when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. And there's a wonderful Tibetan tanka, a painting of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, He's seated under the Bodhi tree and at the other side of the painting is Mara and all of the armies of Mara. And it's first these pictures of every temptation you could imagine. And then surrounding that is the battle, the forces of jealousy and pride and anger and rage. And they're throwing swords and spears at him. And what the Buddha does at one point in this painting is hold up his hand like this. And he touches each arrow or spear as it comes with his fingers and it's connected by a cord, a golden cord of energy to his heart of compassion. And as he touches each one with kindness and compassion, it turns into a flower and falls at his feet. And there's a big mound of flowers around him. And that's the power that one learns 
to sit and to face what is here and to let it touch your heart and to receive it with the power of your kindness and your understanding. So you go through the hardships, that's the fourth stage, and then there comes, for many of you as old students, it comes over and over again, a kind of transcendence, a going beyond what was limited, this sense of self and body and mind. It's a kind of dying over and over again, maybe deeper each time, of seeing that we possess nothing. It's not our breath. It's not our body. If you think this is your body, you're really in trouble. You don't own it. You rent it for a while. You have to take care of it, but that's about it. How about your thoughts? Are they yours? Talk to them for a while. See if they listen. And you get to see in a very deep way that we possess none of it. And the whole sense of ourself dissolves. And there's a kind of opening and a fearlessness and an understanding that who we are is much different and greater than we presumed. You come to what the Buddha called this place of unshakability, being unshaken by the wind. Because you face your fears and your loneliness and you're dying, all your desires, the past, the future. The Diamond Sutra puts it this way, thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, and a dream. And there is some place that we can come to and touch that sees that and knows that it's true. It's a place that's still and whole and timeless. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or any solution, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, that something new can be born. Because then the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. And so we see, in a very deep way. And out of that, and out of this practice, comes an ability to act and play with our heart open in every realm and without getting caught in the suffering and the perfection and the real and the unreal. Those are just words for this mystery. Zen Master Ryokan says, my life may appear melancholy, but traveling through this world, I've entrusted myself to heaven. In my sack, three quarts of rice, by the hearth, a bundle of firewood. If someone asks, what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say. Wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage 
and stretch out both feet in answer. Just this simple coming to rest. And that brings one to the last stage, which is an integration. As we sit or walk or whatever practice of the heart we do, and let ourselves really go into it deeply and surrender and open, then eventually we have to return. For a while, mountains are no longer mountains, and then it's time to come back, and mountains are mountains, and rivers are rivers. And now the wise woman or wise man, the shaman, the yogi, sees in some way that they are truly a part of the world. You become that, a bodhisattva, a healer, because you've seen suffering and freedom within this very body and mind. That's where it's to be found. And because you've touched your fears and sorrows and aloneness, and death, you can really manifest compassion, having done the journey in any circumstance and help whatever situation you're in, because you're not so afraid. And the end of the Zen ox herding picture is the last one after finding the ox in the forest and taming it, the whole journey in that image. The tenth picture shows this happy bodhisattva guy with his big grin. He says, I go into the marketplace with my wine bottle and return home with my staff. I visit the shops in the market and everyone I look upon becomes enlightened. And there's this sense of tremendous joy and freedom in entering the world with that kind of heart. Now it's not a small thing. Your practice is not a small matter actually. The world needs a few good yogis in this time. And what's amazing is that the main changes in the world don't come from some great mass movement, but they start in the seeds of an individual's heart. The power of one person to bring light, one person who is deeply committed to the truth and living from that is enormous, whether it's a Buddha or Jesus, or a Gandhi, or Mother Teresa, who affect millions and millions of people by the power of their spirit and their light. Or in other fields, an Einstein in science, or Michelangelo, or a Newton, or Shakespeare, somebody who listens so deeply to a timeless vision that they can affect the whole of some dimension of our life. In our culture, we sometimes think of love as a weakness. If you're too nice and too loving, you'll be weak. And we forget that it's not a weakness at all, but one of the greatest of all powers. And incredible things are done from that spirit. Those images of mothers picking up automobiles off of their children. Incredible power of any one person who has really faced themselves. So we're not here just to do some inner psychological work, although that happens, or to kind of polish up our neurosis somewhat, 
know, or lose weight, although that might happen too, or get quiet, or have a nice New Year's Eve, although it's extraordinary to be here on New Year's. It's very special. All those are true. But we're also here for something deeper, to take this time and create a sacred place for ourselves. And in the very mundane activity of sitting, of following the breath, of taking a cup of tea, of walking, of eating meditation, of being so present with ourselves, we're here to listen and touch that which is sacred and holy and transcendent and free, that which has been touched by humans in every great time and culture, and it's here to be touched by us. It's the most wonderful thing of all time, and wherever it's taken, wherever this journey is undertaken, becomes a great temple. Now to end, I want to read you a few little poems. Sansanim, Zen master, if I remember his poem, he went and sat under, sat, went to India at the Bodhi tree and wrote this poem. He said, once a great man sat under this tree, saw the morning star and was awakened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. He saw things exactly as they were and so attained freedom in all realms. It's that simple. Now, whatever shaman or yogi or healer undertakes this journey, your sacred question, the discipline, the willingness to come back again and again to the present, all of the hardships that arise, the discovery of the transforming power of our awareness and our attention and our heart. And through that, a, a transcendence or a going through the middle of it to something new. It's said that whoever undertakes this journey and completes it ends with a song. I read, read this in the teachings of different shamanic traditions. And what's interesting is the Buddha also had a poem or a song after his enlightenment, his first words. And the poem was, O house builder, thou art seen at last. House builder is craving. The ridge pole is shattered. The rafters are broken. Those mean attachment and ignorance. Never again will you build this house of sorrow. Free to my at last. Now I've given this talk many times before at different retreats. And sometimes people have come afterward and said, well, you know, it's inspiring in certain ways and wonderful, but it's not me. You know, I could never go out on the ice and spend 30 days sitting in a little hut or, or even half of that. You know, I'm not a samurai and I'm not a shaman. I'm a housewife or a waiter or a you know, father or whatever. And one very close friend who served on the staff of the center came to me with that kind of thing. She said, you know, it's a beautiful talk, but it, it leaves me feeling somehow like I'm not the right person to be doing this. And she sat and she meditated after that. We talked about it. And so she wrote a poem, her own poem. 
And it's a different way of looking at this. And the last thing I'll read to you. She says, Shaman, I will seek no more for visions. Let others go into the frozen wastes who have not made their peace with grass or men. In the sunlight by my door, I take my ease. And all unsought, the visions come and curl themselves around my feet. It's a privilege to be practicing together with you. And some of the things that come may feel irritating or simple or mundane. Your knee hurts. You keep thinking about whether you left the oven on or what you're going to tell somebody when you go home. There'll be all kinds of things that come. They are your practice. They probably plagued the Buddha too, although he didn't have ovens, but he had something like it, no doubt. They're part of the nature of seeing mind as mind, seeing body as body, seeing thought and desire and fear, just directly and ordinarily. And it's in your willingness to stay with it and do it, gently from your heart with real kindness, that you will find the depth of this practice. Now a few announcements to make, if I may. Tomorrow will be the first, days of, first day of interviews, and half of you will have your interviews tomorrow. Um, it will be the newer students, the newer half of you. Please check the bulletin board in the morning and look to see where your group will be. Um, we've decided, uh, just because we think it will be more useful to you, that we'll have a group for each of you to start with, and then the rest of the interviews during their retreat will be individual interviews. So I think that would serve you better. Also, since there are so many old students, and also feeling, and feeling the rhythm of the retreat, uh, where the half-hour sittings and walkings with such a large crowd seem kind of short, we're going to change the schedule for tomorrow um, and have uh, a little bit longer sittings and walking. So in the morning there'll be two hour-long sittings and then some. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.